You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week five of the study In His Image. Today's teaching is entitled, God Most Merciful. Good evening, ladies. And congratulations are in order. You have made it to the halfway point (laughs) since we're at week five. So this week we study chapter five, God Most Merciful. And both our chapter and our homework did an excellent job leading us through this topic. In fact, I confess that I was really challenged with what to share tonight that was going to be most beneficial. Uh, For a few days, I was really thinking about having us do a more in-depth look at Hebrews chapter 9, which you hopefully read in your homework, in order to take sort of a deep dive in how the temple, and in particular the mercy seat, are a picture of atonement. Uh, If you've done a study of the tabernacle, you're probably familiar with this illustration, which will be coming up on the screen. Um, And you may recall in your homework the way the Lord is so specific about the law, the tablets of the law being placed inside the ark, and the mercy seat is what's the cover over top of it. Um, And his Shekinah glory met with the high priest above the cherubim, those angels, once a year on the Day of Atonement. So I started taking a deep dive in here, and I was getting very excited about all the connections, and when you see sort of how God is pulling all these pieces together. But while it would be definitely worthwhile to study those connections, actually all the way from Scripture, starting in Genesis, pertaining to the angels, God's glory, all of the depths of meaning of the mercy seat or atonement seat, and how this is a reflection of God's throne room. So this is a picture of what is true in heaven. But I'm really not qualified for that, and that's not the focus of our study. So instead, tonight I'm going to be relying heavily on a sermon by A.W. Tozer on God's mercy. Now, I did start out writing a lesson, but it was filled with so many quotes that it seemed like it would be more straightforward if I share primarily his insights with some edits and updates along the way. It is my hope that hearing this teaching will add to our understanding and be another perspective of God's mercy as we reflect on our most merciful God. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time to spend together. I pray that the magnitude of your mercy would be Revealed to our hearts and our minds tonight. Would you help the distractions and the worries and the concerns of this week to fade as we focus on you? We want much to be made of you, Lord Jesus. We give you this time and ask for your presence here as you promise it is. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to begin with some scripture. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always contend with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our guilty deeds. 
for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our wrongdoings from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our form, and he remembers that we are nothing but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, like a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place no longer knows about it. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him, and his justice to the children's children. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And from 2 Peter, the Lord isn't really slow, being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Mercy, then, is an attribute of God. In Exodus, we have read God's declaration of his mercy as he passed by Moses on Mount Sinai. And so many psalms declare that God is merciful. And as we have said about the previous attributes of God, mercy is not something that God has, but it's something that God is, right? If mercy was something God had, conceivably he might mislay it or use it up. It might become less or more. But since it's something that God is, then we must remember that it is uncreated, meaning that the mercy of God did not come into being. The mercy of God always was in being, for God is eternal and infinite. There has been a lot of careless teaching that implies that the Old Testament is a book of severity and law, and the New Testament is a book of tenderness and grace. But do you know that while both the Old and New Testaments declare the mercy of God, the word mercy, as it appears in the Old Testament, it appears over four times more often than in the New. This popular idea is a great error because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and he's one God. He did not change. He's the same God. He's immutable, and because he's perfect, he cannot be added to. God's mercy was just as great in the Old Testament as it was and is in the New. Now, according to the Old Testament, mercy has certain meanings. To stoop in kindness to an inferior, to have pity upon, and to be actively compassionate. There used to be a verb form of the word compassion, but we don't really use it in that manner anymore. If we were to do so, we would see that God actively compassionates suffering men. For God to use compassion at a distance is one thing, but for God to be actively compassionate to people is something else. We see at the end of Exodus 2, the children of Israel cry out to God in their bondage, and scripture says that God had compassion on them. When God actively exercised compassion on his people, he did four things. 
He heard their groanings. He remembered his covenant with them. He looked upon their sufferings and pitied them. And he immediately came down to help them. The same is true in the New Testament where it says of the Lord Jesus that when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. That's from Mark 6.34. He said to the disciples, feed them. That is being actively compassionate. Now, a great many people are very merciful in their beds, in their lovely living rooms, in their new cars. They have compassion, a noun, but they never compassionate a verb. They hear something in the news, as we have this week, about suffering, or perhaps about a poor family burned out of their home, and now they're out on the street with no place to go, and they think that that's terrible, and then they turn on a podcast or an audiobook and go about their day. They're very compassionate for a minute and a half, but they don't do anything about it. But God's compassion isn't like that. His compassion leads him to action. One fact about the mercy of God is that it never began to be. We often see stories on TV of people who were careless or hard-hearted, but something happens to stir them up and mercy blossoms forth. It was never so of our God. God never lay in lethargy without his compassion. God's mercy is simply what God is, uncreated and eternal. It never began to be, it always was. Heaven and earth were yet unmade and the stars were yet unformed and all of space that NASA and Elon Musk want to explore were only a thought in the mind of God. And God was just as merciful then as he is now. And not only did it never begin to be, but the mercy of God also has never been more than it is now. It is infinite, boundless, unlimited. It has no measurements on any side. Measurements are created things and our God is uncreated. So the mercy of God has never been any more than now, and the mercy of God will never be any less than now. Don't imagine that when the day of judgment comes, God will turn off his mercy like the way the sun goes down behind a cloud or the way that we might turn off a faucet. Don't think for a minute that the mercy of God will cease to be. Nothing that occurs can increase the mercy of God or diminish or alter it in any way. For instance, the cross of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, the mercy of God did not become any greater. It could not become any greater for it was already infinite. We get the odd notion that God is showing mercy because Jesus died. No, Jesus died because God showed mercy. It was the mercy of God that gave us Calvary, not Calvary that gave us the mercy. And remember, we're trying to reform our thoughts to think the way that God thinks. If God had not been merciful, there would have been no incarnation, no babe in the manger, no man on a cross, and no empty tomb. God has mercy enough to enfold the whole universe in his heart, and nothing anybody ever did could diminish the mercy of God. 
A woman can walk out from under and away from the mercy of God, as Israel did, and as Adam and Eve did for a time, as the nations of the world have done. We can make the mercy of God inoperative towards us by our conduct, but that doesn't diminish or change the word of God or the mercy of God, and it doesn't alter the quality of it. The intercession of Christ at the right hand of God does not increase the mercy of God towards his people, because if God were not already merciful, there would be no intercession. And if God is merciful at all, then he is infinitely merciful. It is impossible for that mediatorship. I knew I was going to trip over that. The mediatorship of Jesus to make the mercy of God any more than it is now. I know that this is a very common theme that we have said over the weeks, but it bears repeating. No attribute of God is any greater than any other one. We think so. But since all the attributes of God are simply God, then it's impossible that anything in God can be greater than anything else in him. That's good theology. You can't argue it down. And I would like to make the point that I'm quoting Pastor Tozer here, not just myself. And yet, there are attributes of God that can be needed more at various times. For instance, when the Good Samaritan came upon the man who had been beaten up by robbers and was lying in the road, the most needed attribute at that moment was mercy. He needed somebody to compassionate him. And so the good Samaritan got down off his beast and he showed mercy. And that's what was needed at the time. That's why the mercy of God is so wonderful to a sinner that comes home, that she wants to write about it and talk about it forever. It was what she desperately needed at the moment. We sang, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Yet the grace of God is not any greater than the justice of God or the holiness of God. But for people like you and me, it is what we need the most desperately. It isn't God who's different, it's us. You could go to heaven and say to an angel, isn't the mercy of God wonderful? And he'll know what it is, but he won't understand it the way that we do. Receiving mercy is a human experience. Now, God is equal to himself always, but when you're in a jam, you need certain attributes more than others. When I'm at the doctor's office, I need pity. I want help. I can look up at the wall and see his diplomas and know that he's educated and qualified, but I just want him to be nice to me because I'm always scared when I go to the doctor. And when we come to God, our need determines which of God's attributes at the moment we'll celebrate. And we will have a thousand of them to celebrate. Remember from last week, the judgment of God is God's justice confronting moral inequity and iniquity. When justice sees iniquity, judgment falls. Mercy is God's goodness confronting human guilt and suffering. When the goodness of God confronts human guilt and suffering, God listens and God hears. The bleeding of the lamb comes into his ear, the sigh of the baby comes into his heart, and the cry of his people comes up to the throne. 
The goodness of God is confronting human suffering and guilt. And when that happens, that is mercy. All humans are the recipients of God's mercy. Don't think for a minute that when you repented and came back from the swine pen to the Father's house, that mercy then began to operate. No, mercy had been operating all the time. Lamentations 3.22 says, The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Remember that if you hadn't had the mercy of God all of the time, stooping in pity, condescending to you, withholding judgment, you'd have perished long ago. The cruel dictator is a recipient of the mercy of God. The wicked murderer is a recipient of the mercy of God. And the blackest heart that lies in the lowest valley in the country is a recipient of the mercy of God. That doesn't mean that they will be saved or converted and finally reach heaven, but it means that God is holding up his justice because he's having mercy. He is waiting because a savior died. All of us live under the mercy of God. You may wonder, when I am forgiven and cleansed and delivered, isn't that the mercy of God? Sure, that is the mercy of God to you. But all the time that you were sinning against him, he was having pity on you. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not willing that any should perish. He is waiting. God could take this world and squeeze it in his hand as a child might squeeze a robin's egg and destroy it to be gone forever. Except that he is a merciful God. He sees our tears and hears our groans in all his love and mercy. He is conscious of our suffering down here. All people are the recipients of the mercy of God, but God has postponed the execution. That is all. When the justice of God confronts human guilt, then there is a sentence of death. But the mercy of God, because it is also an attribute of God, not contradicting the other, but working with it, postpones the execution. However, mercy cannot cancel judgment apart from atonement. When justice sees inequity, there must be judgment. But mercy brought Christ to the cross. Now, I don't claim to understand that. I'm so happy about the things that I do know, and I'm so delightedly happy about the things that I do not understand. I don't know what happened there on the cross exactly, but this I know. He died. God, the mighty maker, died for the sin of men and women, the creatures. I know that God turned his back on that holy, holy man. I know that Jesus gave up his spirit and died. I know that in heaven is registered atonement for all mankind and for me. I know that. And I still don't know why, and I don't understand exactly what happened. I only know that in the infinite goodness of God and his infinite wisdom, he constructed a plan whereby the second person of the Trinity, incarnated as a man, could die in order that justice might be satisfied 
while mercy rescued the people for whom he died. That is Christian theology. Whatever your denomination, that's what you want to go to heaven on. You can't go to heaven on worship albums or podcasts or books, but you can go to heaven on the mercy of God in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Justification means that mercy and justice have collaborated so that when God turns and sees iniquity and then sees the Son of Man rushing to the cross, he no longer sees iniquity but justification. And so we are justified by faith. We have noted before that God takes pleasure in the pleasure of his people and suffers along with his friends. In all their suffering, he also suffered, Isaiah 63, 9 says. If you're a diligent thinker, you may ask, how can a perfect God suffer? Suffering means that somewhere there is a disorder. You don't suffer as long as you have psychological, mental, and physical order. But when things get out of order, you suffer. As long as it is declared in the Bible, you and I must take it by faith and say, Father, I believe it. And then, because you believe, you try to understand. And if you can understand, then thank God. Your little intellect can have some fun leaping about, rejoicing in God. But if you read it in the Bible and your mind can't understand it, then there's only one thing to do. And that is to look up and say, O oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know the answer. Ezekiel 37.3. There's an awful lot that we don't know. The trouble with us evangelicals is that we know too much. We're too slick and we have too many answers sometimes. I'm looking for the woman who will say, I don't know, but oh Lord God, you alone know. That is someone who's spiritually wise. So how can God suffer? Suffering would seem to indicate some imperfection, and yet we know that God is perfect. Suffering would seem to indicate some loss or lack, yet we know that God can suffer no loss, and he can't lack. Again, I do not know how to explain this. I only know that the Bible declares that God suffers with his children, and that in all their affliction, he is afflicted. His, in his love and in his mercy, he carries them and makes their bed in their sickness. I know this, but I cannot explain how. There is much about God that is a mystery to us. I don't know how he does it, but I know that when I'm sick, God is sad. I know that when I am miserable with a migraine, God suffers along with me. And I know that in all my sickness, he'll make my bed because his name is goodness, his name is mercy. The nearness of God's mercy is as a father has compassion on his children, from Psalm 103. Perhaps, like me, you have heard some sad accounts of fathers who have rushed into the ocean when their children got caught in a rip current. Just this year, at the Jersey Shore, a dad drowned trying to rescue his teenage daughter who was struggling while swimming on a Friday morning in June. He saw her in danger, struggling, and he put himself in harm's way to intervene. When Peter tried to stop Jesus from going out to the garden on the night he was betrayed, Jesus says to him in effect, if I don't, you don't live. And so he went out to put himself where they could slay him. 
Mercy was showing compassion in the only way it could at that moment by dying. So Christ Jesus our Lord died there on that cross for he loved us and he pitied us as a father pities his children. We who have received mercy must show mercy. We must pray that God will help us to show mercy. We've received it and we're called to show it. We now live with mercy always in view. And when we sacrifice our comfort to help others in their lack, or we help to relieve somebody's physical suffering, we are reflecting the mercy that we have received in Jesus. Ladies, let's ask for the courage and obedience to be merciful as we have received mercy. Don't be afraid to tell God your troubles, to come to him when you are suffering. There is that song that says, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, but that is not true. There is somebody that knows, and our fellow sufferer still retains a feeling for our pain. In heaven, he still remembers his tears, his agonies, and his cries, though now he is at the right hand of the Father Almighty, sitting crowned in glory, awaiting that great coronation day that is to come. But although he is there, and though all around him they cry, worthy is the lamb, he has not forgotten us. He knows everything about you. He knows. He knows when the doctor hates to tell you what's wrong, and your friends come and try to be unnaturally encouraged, utterly alone and forgotten. He knows. An old hymn says, the mercy of God is an ocean divine, a boundless and fathomless flood. It's such a powerful image, isn't it? Let us plunge out into the mercy of God and come to know it. I hope that you believe this because you're going to need this mercy desperately if you don't already have it. The mercy of God in Christ Jesus. What an indescribable gift. Let's thank him for it and live it out. God's blessing on you this week. We'll see you next week for the next chapter.